You are listening to Counterterrorism After 9-11, a podcast series by the International Center for Counterterrorism, exploring how our field has changed in the aftermath of the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001. Today, Counterterrorism After 9-11 is speaking to Tom Parker, author of an important new book titled Avoiding the Terrorist Trap, Why Respecting Human Rights is the Key to Defeating Terrorism. With a storied career spent on the front lines of counterterrorism, Tom will be exploring its different historical manifestations, how these patterns shifted after 9-11, and why its future is firmly grounded in human rights. Interviewing him is Alexander von Rosenbach, who at the time of recording was ICCT's interim director. Tom, welcome to the podcast. We've been uh, looking forward to speaking with you, so thank you very much for joining us today. I'd like to start uh, by actually asking a little bit about your career. I know you've been on the front lines of terrorism and counterterrorism and security roles, but you've also taken on important positions in civil society uh, and in international organizations working on counterterrorism and human rights. Can you briefly walk us through that professional journey? Uh, With pleasure. It it has been a very strange career. Um, I, I started out um, as a security service officer in the UK, um, which is the domestic uh, intelligence service in in Great Britain, um, working essentially as an investigator. Um, And I joined after I was uh, caught up uh, as a student in an IRA bombing attack, um, which was what ultimately motivated me to join the security service when the opportunity came along. Um, Thoroughly enjoyed it, um, spent uh, six or seven years in the service working primarily in counterterrorism, both uh, Middle Eastern and uh, and Irish. But uh, I also spent some time working on counterespionage targets and also was seconded to the police where I spent two years working on Italian organized crime. And I spent uh, four years working for the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, uh, dividing my time between The Hague um, and then also the Balkans. Um, I did work in the immediate aftermath of the Kosovo conflict, uh, on the ground in, in Kosovo, working in the U.S. sector. Um, but primarily my focus was on crimes committed by Mujahideen volunteers who fought in central Bosnia alongside the Bosniak forces. And a lot of those uh, fighters went on to become part of al-Qaeda uh, and its, its associated and affiliated groups. So I had sort of an early exposure to that world um, before, uh, well, in the period that al-Qaeda was coming to public prominence. Uh, you know, I don't think many people have heard of al-Qaeda before um, the, the two embassy attacks in Africa in, in 1998. Um, but, um, you know, just as it was sort of arriving on the public radar, we were finding ourselves working on on uh, uh, crimes committed by many people who'd gone on to, to play quite important roles within the early uh, era of al-Qaeda, sort of pre-9-11 era of al-Qaeda. Um, I moved out of ICTY. I, I uh, married my wife, who's American, so I, I moved to the United States. Um, that necessitated something of a, a career shift. Uh, the conflict in Iraq started. Um, I'd been the Iraq desk officer in the security service, um, and I'd also obviously worked on, worked on war crimes. So I was asked by, by the UK government to join the Coalition Provisional Authority to help uh, create the, the tribunal, the Iraq High Tribunal that ultimately put Saddam on trial. Uh, so I spent uh, six months or so in, in Baghdad in 2003, 2004 doing that. Um, came back from that, uh, had a fellowship at Yale for a couple of years uh, until I found myself being asked increasingly to, to work with human rights organizations. 
um, who were trying to bring universal jurisdiction prosecutions against people who had committed you know, grave uh, war crimes or grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions or, or other types of atrocity, uh, crimes against humanity and genocide. Uh, that led to, to jobs running a, a human rights organization focused on Iran called the Iran Human Rights Documentation Center, and then a stint as the policy director for terrorism, counterterrorism and human rights with Amnesty International USA during the uh, uh, basically the period of the first Obama administration. Um, from there, I, I went back to working for the UN again, uh, spent some time working for the Counterterrorism Implementation Task Force uh, for about three years, uh, then another three years working for the European Union back in Baghdad uh, with the Iraqi Office of the National Security Advisor during the rise of ISIS. Uh, and then more recently, I've been working for the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime uh, in Nigeria uh, with a focus on uh, Boko Haram and supporting efforts to defeat uh, the insurgency in the Northeast. Super. Thank you very much for sharing that. Uh, I actually think it's quite remarkable that you've been able to situate yourself in what sounds like quite different roles over the last 20 years and still find a way in each of them to make uh, make an impact. But before we talk a bit more in depth about your experiences and the lessons you've learned along the way, I did want to take a minute to uh, situate you and your own personal experience in the 9-11 attacks. Uh, if it's okay with you, uh, would you mind telling our listeners where you were on 9-11 and what you recall about that day? Certainly. Uh, it was quite a dramatic day for me. I, I was actually in, in Mostar um, in Bosnia, which is a, a city divided into two halves. Uh, separated by a river, one half which is Bosniak or Muslim and the other half which is Croat or Catholic, um, taking a statement from um, a torture victim, actually. Uh, so it's quite a draining day. And I, I vividly remember coming out at the end of this session. You know, of course, uh, I wasn't aware of what was going on. So I, I nipped out to get a coffee at a little coffee joint around the corner from where we were working. And I, I saw lots of sort of flashing lights on the TV screen. Something bad had obviously happened. Um, and, you know, I can remember thinking to myself, oh, it must be something in Israel. And it was only a couple of um, about half an hour later that somebody told me what had happened. Um, and then things kind of went into overdrive because my wife and son were actually flying out of Boston that morning uh, to the to New York. So, the you know, the immediate uh, panic was which flight had crashed into the towers and was it, you know, a flight that my my family was on. Um, the next moment of panic is my brother-in-law is a New York City firefighter. Um, and we were, of course, very early on hearing about the, the loss of, of so two, two, three hundred New York firefighters. Um, uh, my in-laws live in lower Manhattan. So then there was the concern about where they were and the cell phones were down. Um, so it took me about five hours to finally get through to the United States. And I remember getting through to my sister-in-law and the first thing she said but to me was, you know, everyone's OK which is the perfect response when you get through to somebody in circumstances like that. Uh, and then I remember having to, you know, wait, gosh, probably four or five days. It might have been longer to get back to the United States. Um, you know, I, I, as soon as I was back from Bosnia, I, I got on one of the first flights back to the U.S., uh, flew into New York. Um, and I remember one, you know, uh, seeing the smoking ruins from the plane as we came into land at JFK. And then I remember... Um, you still have military cordons in lower Mon Manhattan sort of moved down to the area where my uh, in-laws lived. You know, I had to go through multiple military checkpoints so that I could, could get to their home. Um, so, yeah, very, very close to home, very visceral. Um, my wife, um, who is an expert on working with uh, families at mass grave sites, um, you know, she is a New Yorker. She was straight down at Ground Zero and volunteered. 
as a first responder working with families, particularly the families who hadn't been able to recover the bodies of their loved ones, uh, which was a job that she continued working on for, for, for a couple of years after that. So it was, it was a, an event that, um, struck very close to home. Um, and, you know, stirred up a lot of powerful emotion for, for me at least. Thanks uh, for sharing that very visceral and uh, obviously deeply personal experience. Um, to be frank, I can't really imagine what it was like to be in lower Manhattan in those days and weeks after the attacks, hearing every day firsthand stories of loss and, and suffering. Um, yeah, quite a weighty experience, I imagine. Um, I'd like to follow you a little bit through the immediate aftermath uh, and ask you how that lived experience impacted your career. Did you immediately feel you needed to, in some way or other, engage with what had happened? Or did that come later through other developments in your career? That's a really interesting question and, and quite a difficult one to, to answer. I, I've... You know, when I left the security service, one of the reasons I left, um, and, you know, we're talking uh, 1997, you know, I left because the Northern Ireland peace process had taken hold and there didn't appear to be, you know, we were well into the, the peace dividend from the Cold War. Um, it just didn't seem to be um, an area where there was a growing future. But I remember, actually, it was not 9-11, it was the um, the two embassy bombings in 1998. Um, just the callousness, particularly in the, the, um, the bombing of the U.S. Embassy in, in Nairobi, um, the disregard for local life just made that attack and therefore this group Al-Qaeda just different. Um, you know, most terrorist organizations, they use violence in a very calibrated way. Um, and they do, for the most part, try and minimize civilian casualties, which is not to say they don't sometimes deliberately set out to kill civilians. But they don't typically set out to kill as many civilians as possible, particularly civilians who aren't directly concerned in the, you know, the political grievance that, that they have. And so there was something about the Nairobi bombing that made me think we were about to face a new challenge and, um, that it was, was really serious. Um, and that was the moment where I, I did, to be honest, think about going back. Um, the problem is that's not quite how it works in the UK. Um, or at least it didn't work then. Um, you know, the security service was quite a, a secret organization and, and typically in the intelligence business, certainly in the, the, the last century at least, uh, once you left, you left because you don't have clearance anymore and you're a civilian and you're not part of the secret world. Um, so it's not that easy to go back. Um, but I did, um, I did apply for a couple of jobs in the counterterrorism realm, uh, in the aftermath of, of 9-11. Um, but we rolled pretty quickly from that into Iraq. Um, and that, that, then an opportunity came knocking. And I didn't, to be honest, I mean, having been at the, the, um, desk officer for Iraq for three years in the mid nineties, I mean, I didn't for a second think there was any likelihood of a connection between Al Qaeda and Saddam, quite the reverse. Um, Saddam had no time for, for Islamic fundamentalists, um, and would have seen them as a threat to his regime. So I didn't think I, I wasn't on the bandwagon. Um, of the Bush administration that, that thought that Saddam had a role to play or somehow connected to 9-11, not at all. Um, but um, having worked on Saddam, I knew him to be a pretty evil man. Um, I was familiar with Amphal and the genocide against the Kurds. I was familiar with the devastation wrought against the Shia after the first Gulf War. 
I was aware of what he'd done to the Jewish community. I was aware of what he, of what he had done in, uh, against his political opponents. And in fact, part of my job when I was the desk officer in the UK was to prevent the assassination of dissidents living in the UK. Um, and Saddam had killed several over the, the, the previous decade, uh, including a, a former prime minister of Iraq, General Naif. So, you know, I mean, I, I knew him to be a very bad man. And I, you know, having worked as a war crimes investigator, I felt he was the sort of person that should face justice. And so when I was asked to, to play a role in that, I was very keen to sign up. Uh, you know, I am a believer in international justice. I am a believer in liberal democracy. And I, you know, <laughs> for better or worse, thought, thought we could actually help. Um, so I was, was keen to go. And that was the opportunity that took me back into into this realm, albeit not as an investigator, not as an officer, but as somebody working in this field or around this field. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Tom. What I like in that answer already is that you're starting to allude to some of the challenges that we faced as international community about what we thought we could achieve in Iraq and also um, by extension in Afghanistan. And I definitely want to come back to that. But I actually want to first start with a slightly different tack and to ask you what you think we got right, if anything, in response to 9-11. I'm sure, for instance, you spent a lot of time at Amnesty International tackling what didn't work. But I am very curious to know as well from your perspective if you see any or saw any successes as well. To be honest, it's much easier to talk about what went wrong rather than what went right. Um, I, I think maybe there was an opportunity um, if the initial response and I don't think the United States have much alternative to, but to respond in Afghanistan the way it did initially. Um, if the response had stopped at the routing of the Taliban out of the country and their removal from government and hadn't then evolved into a long-term nation-building exercise, um, then we might have been able to talk about a success. Um, and a, a successful response. But it, it's very hard to, to even make that claim because, you know, the, the unintended consequences that flow from a dramatic action like uh, ousting a government, it's very hard to predict what, what would happen. Um, Afghanistan was, of course, in turmoil. Um, some of the key players, and particularly um, Shah Massoud, had been killed um, at the same time as the 9-11 attacks deliberately by, by al-Qaeda. So there were there were power vacuums and key points. So I don't know that it's as easy to say they could have just given the Taliban a bloody nose and withdrawn and things would have stabilized and, 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 a, and a different, more, not necessarily liberal, but at least more uh, friendly government could have taken taken control of most of the territory of, of Afghanistan. I mean, it, it, you can't you just can't make a prediction like that. But certainly the U.S., if it had done that, wouldn't have been drawn into the quagmire it did get drawn into. Um, but other than that, it's it's really hard to look at successes in the initial response. I, I think almost every um, major decision that was taken in the aftermath of 9-11 was a bad one. Um, even things like the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, um, you know, such a fudge, um, leaving the, the FBI out of it, um, you know, out of your counterterrorism, your new counterterrorism. <laughs> Um, apparatus, uh, but you're not going to include the main investigative organ working on counterterrorism. I mean, you know, th those kind of compromises make very, very little sense. And if you're going to make swinging change, you might as well make that change effective. Um, so I can't think of any area, actually, 
where I would point to it and say, gosh, well, that was that was a bright spot. Um, you know, and, and that's kind of the journey that I went on. I mean, I was a I was a pretty hard charging security service officer in the 90s. Um, you know, I, I didn't think much about human rights. I didn't talk, think at all about human rights, to be honest. Um, I was just very focused on, you know, putting bad guys in jail. Um, and it was the experience of six months in Iraq watching us alienate the Iraqi population on an almost daily basis that changed the way I thought about things. Um, and actually sent me away with a, uh, from that experience with a lot of thinking to do. And I was lucky enough to be offered a, a fellowship at Yale when I got back from, from Iraq. And, you know, I wasn't a particularly academically minded person, uh, before. Um, but, um, I had done a LLM when I was working for the ICTY. I'd, I'd done a, a master's in international law at Leiden. And so I'd, I'd started to think about international law and issues like international humanitarian law and human rights law. So it was all kind of in the soup that was swirling around in my head after that experience. And I, I sat down for six months to try and think what historical lessons there were that illuminated the experience that I've been through in, in Iraq and whether or not there were some patterns of good responses and bad responses that one could tease out of the historical record that could inform better policy responses. And, and that ended up sort of driving you know, 15, 16 years of research now, you know, culminating in writing a book, um, you know, avoiding the terrorist trap. And that work led me into different places. Um, so whether it was teaching um, or whether it was publishing, um, that did bring me to notice of people who were also working in that space. Um, and that's what led to the, the, the opportunity to work for Amnesty International. In fact, I was teaching a class at Yale and there was an Amnesty student board member in my class. And he was very struck by the arguments that I was making from an efficacy point of view um, that matched the arguments that Amnesty was making from a principal point of view. Uh, he mentioned that to the then executive director of Amnesty, and that led to a meeting and um, quite by fortuitously that then led to a job offer. Yeah, I'd love to jump in and, and pick up on a couple of things right away from that answer. Um, one of which is this notion that you're introducing of historical patterns. In your book, uh, Avoiding the Terrorist Trap, Why Respect for Human Rights is the Key to Defeating Terrorism, you spend quite a lot of time, and I think quite important time, looking at different historical manifestations of terrorism and trying to understand how that trap was created and why intervening forces continue to fall into them over and over again. Um, could you tell our listeners a little bit why, in your view, we continue to respect repeat the mistakes of the past and why we seem unable to learn from that history? I think the answer to that is, is, is quite complicated, but also at the same time, quite simple. Um, the first thing I would say is uh, that, that I, my work owes a, a major debt to literally a, a, a one line in Louise Richardson's book, What Terrorists Want, um, where she referred to a pathology of state overreaction. So it's kind of a throwaway line, but she just mentions in passing that, you know, that the states seem to respond so um, thoughtlessly to terrorist threats um, that you could argue that there's a pathology there, that every state does it. And, and that was kind of a start, a point of departure for me, because I, I thought, well, wow, that's a very sweeping statement that can't possibly be right. And the reality is I haven't really come across a single example um, there's one or two minor ones. You could make an argument that Norway after Brevik didn't overreact. Um, but of course, that's, you know, it was a, it was a blue sky event and it 
it was a one-off, not part of a accumulating um, campaign of pressure. Um, but by and large, if there's a serious, um, consistent, abiding challenge to governmental authority from a terrorist group, governments tend to overreact to that threat. Um, what's more, terrorists know that. Um, you know, one thing that came clear to me through my research is that there's basically a terrorist doctrine, and that terrorist doctrine has not really changed in 150 years. Um, terrorist groups learn from each other. They consciously go out and read about the uh, the histories of other terrorist groups. They read manuals produced by other terrorist groups. They are voracious consumers uh, of material about previous conflicts. Um, you know, for example, if you were to look in Al Qaeda's operational manuals, the person who is quoted more than anybody else is Chairman Mao. You know, partly because of his manual on guerrilla warfare, but you know he he becomes a constant constant touchstone for Al Qaeda, as does uh, Giap, the, the the Vietnamese general, uh, who was so successful um, in, in the Viet Cong's fight against the, the United States, the French, and then the United States in Vietnam. Um, so terrorists learn from each other. They set out to to, to learn as much as they can from previous terrorist organizations' experience. Um, and basically, if you look at every terrorist campaign, they revolve around six core themes. Asymmetrical warfare, you know, the, the idea that it's going to be a long attritional conflict, um, the idea that uh, propaganda by deed, that terrorism is theater and the, the targets you choose and the types of attacks that you mount, you know, communicate your message and your, your intent and your seriousness. Um, the use of revolutionary prototypes, that's a phrase that goes back to Sergei Nightshare from the 1860s. Um, but, you know, you might call it martyrs, um, sort of charismatic leadership. Um, but the key two themes that you'll, you'll see come up again and again in every terrorist organization is the idea that they are contesting legitimacy with the state, i.e. making the argument that what they're doing is legitimate and what the state is doing is illegitimate, and that they want to provoke an overreaction. Um, there's a there's a great description um, by a writer and, and you know your, your listeners should definitely go out and research this piece because it, it's a really good and easy read. Actually published back in the um, I think it was the early 1980s by David Fromkin, uh, who's a historian. He's he's passed now, but he wrote this great article about terrorism and it you know it basically is focused on Bader Meinhof and the Red Army faction and uh, uh, the Basque separatist group ETA and, and the IRA. Um, but most of the insights that he uh, identifies hold good today. And one of his comments is that terrorism is basically political jujitsu, um, that terrorists seek. You know, they know that they are nowhere near as powerful as the state, that they can't match the military power of the state. So what they set out to do is to harness the state's military power and use it against it. Um, and they will use that state overreaction to polarize society to force people to choose between them and the state. Um, you know, as the state clamps down on maybe a, an outgroup within it, a minority group, an identifiably other group, uh, that might be religious, it might be ethnic, um, terrorist groups will exploit that experience of that community to recruit more people to their cause. Um, also, by overreacting and by introducing sort of draconian measures, states alienate their allies. Um, and that, of course, makes it harder for them to gather intelligence, and it, it, it also limits their scope and their reach. Um, you know, it becomes more difficult to extradite somebody if uh, you know your allies do not think that you will give a fair trial to that individual. Um, that was an experience that the United States has had 
post 9-11 with some states. And we had similar issues uh, in the UK during the Northern Ireland conflict, um, where uh, on a number of occasions reaching out to you know, our close allies like the United States, we had difficulties extraditing uh, suspected and indeed on, on some occasions convicted members of the IRA from overseas to, to bring them back to face justice, British justice in the UK. Um, and what was happening was, and this, this was particularly prevalent in the late 1970s and, and early 1980s with cases like Quinn and Mackin and, and, and McMullen, um, what was happening was these IRA defendants were basically invoking what's known in international law as the political offense exemption uh, as an argument um, to fight the British extradition request. And American courts in the late 1970s and early 80s were quite sympathetic to the argument that um, Irish political um, militants wouldn't receive a fair hearing in a British court, you know, particularly during the period that British courts um, were, were sitting without juries in Northern Ireland, the so-called Diplock courts. Um, and so, you know, you, you saw tension grow up between two very, very close allies over this sense of um, that one government perhaps might not be behaving in a way that uh, the other government saw as entirely legitimate and, and, and lawful. And in fact, um, in, 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 during the Reagan period, the UK and the US ended up actually negotiating a supplementary extradition treaty specifically to eliminate the political exemption defense um, because it was causing so much tension between the two countries. So, you know, th this, is, this is an issue that you can see um, again and again in, in different counterterrorism efforts around the world. It, when a state starts behaving in a way that its allies find um, objectionable and difficult, it does inevitably impact cooperation between the two countries. Um, you know, if you want to uh, look at different sort of terrorist manuals, um, you'll find, uh, for example, there's a, um, uh, a Basque uh, theorist called Kurtvig who, who talked about action, repression, action. Um, that was his theory of conflict. Um, the idea being that, that, that Edda would carry out an action, it would provoke repression from the Spanish state, and that would drive further action. Um, the FATA used to call the, talk about a very, very similar dynamic, but they call it consecutive detonation. Right? The, this idea of, of provoking um, the state on and on and on to become more and more draconian, it, it's hardwired into terrorist group after terrorist group after terrorist group. The Red Brigades used to call it the worse, the better. Right. Um, you know, the worse the reaction, the better for us. Um, this is so common. And you see it, of course, also referenced by bin Laden and uh, also in Dabiq, you'll, 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 you'll be familiar with the phrase eliminating the gray zone. Right. This is all the same basic concept. And you can track it again all the way back to Sergei Naichev and his catechism of the revolutionary in the in the 1860s, um, where he actually has one of his catechism. One of his lines is, uh, you know, you, you, you leave the most bestial officials alive because they will drive the people to inevitable revolt. Um, so there's nothing new about this, but states seem unable to process that. And there's a reason, right? It's not that states are stupid. Um, you know, it's that terrorism is essentially uh, something that afflicts democratic states and democratic politicians have to take their, their publics into account. Um, publics are frightened by terrorism and they want to see tough responses and tough responses are not always smart responses. But you get stuck in this sort of world of security theater where you have to be seen to be doing something. Well, it's not that easy 
to identify and find and catch terrorists. So you end up doing things that signal your seriousness, but actually don't achieve that much. And, and I always think, you know, sort of the emblematic examples of that would be if you go to Grand Central Station, it's not the case anymore, but you used to in the aftermath of 9-11 see National Guardsmen patrolling with M16 rifles. Um, well, if they fired those rifles, that is a weapon of war designed to put a bullet out that goes through three people. It's the last weapon you would want to use in a crowded terminal to identify and kill one person. Um, but again, they're there because it's security theater. The British government does the same thing. And every time there's a heightened state of alert, we send warrior armor personnel carriers to Heathrow Airport. You know, and if that Raiden cannon was ever used, it would cause more damage than terrorists could cause in a month of Sundays. And it sits there, you know, a big lump of metal of very little utility whatsoever to reassure the public. Um, and that's the problem. At the end of the day, the public doesn't always let the politicians do the smart things. Um, and, and that is the terrorist trap, right? And I don't know what the answer to that is. Education is probably part of it. But as we've seen recently in the public health world, it's not that simple. You know, it, you know people don't necessarily want to listen. Um, and they don't necessarily want to listen to good advice. And they won't necessarily accept that good advice is good advice. Uh, and that's your challenge um, in a democracy. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I know that answer is actually the fruit of many years of hard work. Uh, so thank you very much for sharing it with us. Um, and in many ways, I think what resonates for me is the fact that what you said and what you've worked on and what you introduce in your book intersects with many of the core themes that ICCT works on every day. This includes uh, things like understanding the efficacy of response, but also uh, work to educate the public policymakers and practitioners about how to respond and why it's important to base those responses on evidence more than emotion. And I guess I'd like to turn the conversation a little bit now to, to take that thought and bring it back to the post 9-11 context. Um, with that in mind, would you mind sharing with us what you consider to be perhaps the most damaging state overreactions in countering terrorism over the last 20 years? Yeah, let me uh, let me respond by focusing um, specifically on on the U.S. response uh, to the 9-11 attacks, because I because I think they're, they're instructive in many ways. Many of the steps that the United States took um, after 9-11 are the kind of steps that lots of democratic governments have taken uh, when facing significant terrorist threats for the first time. Um, and I think one has to bear in mind that the United States was perhaps also in a somewhat unique situation. It hadn't had a great experience of domestic terrorism itself, which is not to say there hadn't been terrorism in the United States. Obviously, you had um, quite uh, violent terrorism directed against the African-American community in the South by the Ku Klux Klan and associated groups for, for, you know, almost 150, well, for 100 years after the, uh, uh, the Civil War, right up until, you know, the, the, the late, well, until the 1970s. And to a certain extent, there are still incidents today. Um, but it wasn't treated by the state as a domestic terrorist threat, even though I think it amounted to that. Um, and then the U.S. never really faced an internal domestic terrorist threat on the level of something like ETA or the Provisional IRA. Uh, or the Red Brigade or Barna Beinhoff. Um, there were terrorist groups that carried out political campaigns in the US. You had Puerto Rican separatists, the Weather Underground. Um, so it's not that there was no serious, no terrorist threat in the United States over the last hundred years or so. It's just that it was never close to existential, or at least 
close to being perceived as existential. Um, and then out of that background, you suddenly find yourself faced with the most significant, the largest terrorist attack, you know, in history up until that point uh, with 9-11. So it, it's not surprising to me that the United States overreacted. Um, and, I, and I do think, you know, that that is to a certain extent understandable. Um, and it shows the importance of these international norms of international human rights law, because these international standards are there to stop you overreacting, to give you red lines that you don't cross, because when you cross those lines, you play into the terrorist's hands. Um, and if we look at the sort of most egregious missteps that the United States made, I think there are three of them. Um, the first would be the decision to try people uh, suspected of being members of Al Qaeda and the Taliban before the military commissions in Guantanamo Bay. Um, this was a completely unnecessary step. It has proved very, very unsuccessful. Um, you know, we've had, I think, a total of eight trials in Guantanamo in 20 years, almost 20 years. Um, there's been eight convictions, three of which have been overturned, one of which has been partially overturned. Um, the 9-11 conspirators and the USS Cole conspirators were arraigned in 2011, and their trials still haven't started and are likely not to be concluded for years, which means that you have no justice for the victims, no justice for the defendants. Um, and, you know, we've been treated to the spectacle of uh, people being held in, in, in cages in orange jumpsuits. We've, we've um, seen the word Guantanamo become a byword for abuse. Um, and it's a simple one word punchline when any U.S. narrative about freedom, liberty, democracy is is made um, and, and put forward to justify U.S. behavior. The counterpunch is Guantanamo. And it's a very powerful counterpunch. Um, you know, we, we've given powerful propaganda victories uh, to our enemies and we've achieved nothing in the process. If you look at federal courts since 9-11, they've tried something like 600 terrorism cases or terrorism related cases, um, while Guantanamo has struggled, you know, to, to, to even reach double figures. So it was one of those completely unnecessary steps. Um, and it has led to a, an incredibly unedifying process. Um, and it has accomplished almost nothing in terms of security goals. So I think that's one of the big missteps. Another huge one was the use of torture. Um, and I don't have any he hesitation in describing enhanced interrogation techniques as being on that spectrum. Um, you know, the, the Convention Against Torture, the International Convention Against Torture, its full title is the uh, International Convention Against Torture and Cruel and Human and Degrading Treatment. There's no question that the enhanced interrogation techniques fall somewhere on that spectrum between torture and cruel and human and degraded treatment. Um, there's plenty of international jurisprudence that puts it there. Um, the United States itself prosecuted Japanese uh, security officials for waterboarding, waterboarding American pilots. So, you know, there, there's no confusion that these techniques are somehow lawful. What the United States did was, by any standard, to, to introduce unlawful tactics. And again, you know, there's so little, so, so much limited utility to using physical force in an interview. Um, you know, it, it's not that no one ever talks when they're, when they're tortured. Some people obviously do talk, but many, many people do not. Um, the information you get when you torture people is, is unre inherently unreliable. Um, coercive interrogations are driven by the person asking the questions which leaves very, very little space for deviation from those questions 
which means in turn that if the person asking the questions hasn't got a good handle on what happened and is groping for more information, there's no chance for a reset. There's no chance for the person being interviewed to say, it's interesting you keep asking about this, but the real issue is actually what happened over here, right? That, that can't happen in a coercive closed interview because it is driven purely by the interrogator. Um, so, I mean, on, on a practical level, on a skills level, it's just not an effective response. And, and we know that people like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed were able to, to lie effectively despite being waterboarded, you know, more than 100 times. Um, we know that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed invented information about, you know, uh, fa- uh, made up attacks to make uh, the, the interrogator stop waterboarding him. Um, and we know that he was able to lie about the identity of bin Laden's courier while being waterboarded. So, I mean, it's not an effective tool and it's a tool that massively, massively undermines your credibility. And, and if Guantanamo is a one word rebuttal to the you know, America's self-image as a, a city on the shining hill, the photograph of the Iraqi prisoner in Abu Ghraib standing on a box with a hood on his head wired up uh, to, to wires going leading off camera. That's the visual equivalent. Um, you know, it's an incredibly powerful indictment of what happened under the Bush administration. And it's a tool that has been used again and again and again to damage America's reputation around the world. Um, General Petraeus has this great line. He says that Abu Ghraib and situations like it are non-biodegradable. You know, the enemy continues to hit you with these issues like a stick. Uh, and that's what's happened. And then the third big misstep for me is targeted killing, um, the use of drones. And specifically the use of drones outside of recognized combat areas. So I would argue that there's a certain legitimacy to using drones. Well, not a certain legitimacy. Drones are a weapon system. Uh, there's nothing special about them. They're, they're no different, you know, in terms of international humanitarian law than a rifle or a howitzer. Um, so, you know, it's a weapon of war that you can use in the context of military operations. The question gets much more complicated when you want to use it outside that theater of operations. And while I think there's legitimacy to use them in places like uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, where you have troops in combat, that becomes a lot more problematic when you're using, in, using them in countries where you don't have troops on the ground. And that might be Yemen or Somalia or, or Pakistan uh, or the Philippines. Um, when you're using them in those contexts, um, I don't think they are lawful. Um, out with perhaps a very, very narrowly defined set of circumstances. Um, and we know that drones have killed many innocent people. Um, at the most conservative estimate uh, in Pakistan, drones have killed well over 400 innocent people. And let me stress, that's the most conservative estimate. Um, we know of at least one drone strike where a school was hit and 60 children were killed. Um, again, these are enormous own goals and they're incredibly damaging for the U.S. Um, and we know that the former leader of the, the Pakistani Taliban, Baitullah Masood, um, used to tell his supporters that every drone strike brings me three more suicide bombers. Um, so you're not even diminishing the pool of people that you're fighting. If anything, by the use of these te- tactics, you're growing that pool. Now, there may be some tactical successes along the way. Killing bin Laden was a tactical success, um, but it didn't ultimately have that much of a strategic impact. You know, Al Qaeda is still a threat. Um, and indeed, other organizations have also morphed to fill the gap left by bin Laden's leadership. And that's, you know, we saw that with ISIS. So, you know, I, I'm not convinced that any of these three tools have had any utility whatsoever. And I am pretty convinced that they have been very damaging or their use has been very damaging to the cause of defeating terrorism.
Thank you very much, Tom. Um, it's quite an indictment, but I think an important one to put out there. Um, I'll, I, you've already been quite generous with your time, so let me just, uh, I guess, finish up with two more questions. Firstly, I wanted to get your view about how we answer this question of effectiveness, um, whether in public debate or in policy settings or in the realm of the practitioner. There's sometimes this idea that taking the tough line is uh, the most effective way to counterterrorism, or in sometimes the only effective way to counterterrorism, and that if you are constrained by human rights or the rule of law, you're a bit soft, or you maybe more generously, you're putting on the gloves when your opponents don't do that. Um, have you been confronted with that idea in your work? And if so, how do you answer it? So that, this is a really interesting point because it's actually not a conversation that takes place very often. Uh, and that's because human rights advocates don't talk about efficacy and they don't want to talk about efficacy because for them, it's an issue of law and morality. Um, and if you make it about efficacy, the argument goes, you undermine law and, and morality, right? Because you're, you're in a world of the ends justifying the means. Um, and I understand that point of view. Um, but I wrote my book. And I wrote Avoiding the Terrorist Trap precisely because nobody was talking about the efficacy argument. Now, I'm not making an ends justifying the means argument. I'm simply conducting an historical analysis. Um, and I'm not concluding in any way, shape or form that one should only follow uh, human rights uh, because they're effective. That's not the argument I'm making. I am making the argument that human rights do provide a framework within which the most effective counterterrorism is carried out which is a slightly different argument. Um, but as a general rule, human rights advocates, they don't want to engage on efficacy arguments because they're worried it will undermine the international standards that have been established. Um, and I, I respect that position and I understand it, but I have also as, as, a, as a, <laughs> a human rights advocate myself found that a very unpersuasive argument when I've been in the field conducting trainings. I've trained law enforcement, security personnel, and military personnel in somewhere between 20 and 30 different countries all over the world. I've worked in, in, in Mexico and in Colombia and Peru in Nepal, Sri Lanka, uh, um, Rwanda and Tanzania and uh, Uganda and uh, Tajikistan and, and Kyrgyzstan and uh, uh, Lebanon and um, Ukraine, Latvia, I mean, a whole range of different places around the world, different continents. Um, and I found simple arguments like um, this is what the ICCPR, this is what the International Government on Civil and Political Rights says. This is what the Convention Against Torture says. These aren't very persuasive arguments to most guys on the front line. And indeed, when I was a security service officer, I'd never heard the phrase human rights mentioned. Right. And that wasn't because the security service didn't respect human rights. Quite the contrary. Um, the British Security Service was a very law-based organization that had great respect for the rule of law, but it was British law that they were focused on. And there's a reason for that. The, the Human Rights Act wasn't passed until 1998, which incorporated the European Convention of Human Rights into British law. That was after my time. So, I mean, there is a, a logical reason for that. But the point is that ultimately, if you're in law enforcement, if you're in the military, if you're in the security world, you are following the laws of your land, right? Um, that's your touchstone. That's your training. That's what you've been, you know, as a police officer trained to enforce. Um, and so the international perspective, it doesn't 
land that heavily with you. And you may think about it, oh, that's very nice and that's interesting. And this, you know, that a lot of states have tried, particularly since 9-11, to bring their policies, their laws into compliance with certain international standards. And we have Security Council resolutions like 1373 that require them to do so. But at the end of the day, the laws that apply on the territory of the state are national laws. And so that always is going to be the primary focus of the people that you're training. Um, so then you have to find a way that your the principles that you're advocating for land in a way that they register them and think, oh, actually makes some sense. Um, and there are a couple of different ways to do that. Um, one is in terms of tactical and strategic utility. Um, another is by pointing out, particularly in instances of torture, for example, your actual personal liability um, and the fact that this is not something the statute of limitations. If you torture somebody, you are a torturer who has committed a universal crime until your dying day who can be prosecuted anywhere on the planet. And that's a sobering realization, um, you know, because, <laughs> you know, regimes change. Right. Um, and just because you did something at 25 doesn't mean that you won't be held to account for it, you know, in your 70s. And as I always say to the classes I teach, we still prosecute Nazis. Right? There's, there's, there's a been a Nazi on trial, I believe, in I think it was in the Baltic states this year. Right. And, that, you know, that, that war is over 70 years ago now. Um, so, you know, you, you try and find different ways to make these principles register with people. But then the other side of it is also making a slightly different argument which is you don't need to do these things to be effective. Um, and one of the arguments that I make in the book, in fact, a third of the book is is focused on this. It is that you have within international human rights law all the latitude you need to conduct effective investigations. Um, in fact, human rights law is pretty permissive. The only real requirements placed on states and the way that they use intelligence resources are that they are resources that are defined in law, i.e. they are lawful, and that they are used in a manner that is reasonable, necessary, and proportionate to the threat face. And that isn't that high a bar. Um, and within that context, you can do things like source recruitment, electronic and physical surveillance, covert operations, disruptions. Right? You can interview people. You can detain people. It's even possible to detain people administratively um, without conviction. Um, you know, you can conduct community-oriented policing. You can conduct PVE invent, uh, interventions. You can do stratcoms, strategic communications, and you can use force. You can arrest people. You can use force to maintain public order. And you can ultimately use, if necessary, lethal force when faced with a lethal threat. So there's a great deal of latitude in international human rights law for the people involved in protecting the public. And indeed, international human rights law creates an obligation for states to protect their publics from terrorists and to allow their publics to enjoy the full range of rights, of protected rights, that they have living in their society. So there's no tension, I would argue, between international human rights law and effective counterterrorism. And I think most professionals, when they actually take a step back and think about it, realize this. Because we know one of the things that drives, one of the main drivers of terrorism recruitment is experience of human rights abuses or physical abuse or force by the state. Yeah, that's, uh, I think, extremely important and yet somehow overlooked in so much of our CT response over the years. Um, I guess this brings me to the last question of the day, which is uh, to help us address the emergence of right-wing extremism. 
Well, this threat has been on the radar for many years. Uh, the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol really put it center stage, I think, for for many, certainly in the public domain and also for, for policymakers. What lessons from your professional experience from the last 20 years of jihadi-focused counterterrorism do you think we should heed as we start thinking about what to do about the right-wing extremist threat? I think that's a great question. Um, I think the first thing to say is I don't think the old threat is over. Um, I think ISIS is still a very significant threat. Um, and I think uh, related affiliates around the world, like you know, Boko Haram in Nigeria, but also uh, the whole range of different um, Islamist violent extremist groups around the world, you know, they still pose a very, very serious threat. And I don't think that threat is going to disappear anytime soon. So I'm not a great believer in wave theory that uh, there's one type of terrorism and then suddenly another type of terrorism comes along. It is possible to have two things going on simultaneously. <laughs> Um, I think we're having an emergence. We are seeing the emergence of um, or an increase, at least in in right wing extremist terrorism or what you might call exclusionist terrorism or ethnically motivated terrorism. There's a a variety of different descriptors out there. But this is nothing new. I think there's one important point to, to, to make. There have been violent right wing exclusionist ethnically motivated terrorist groups around consistently for 150 years. And the Ku Klux Klan being the first, um, going back to the 1860s, it was incredibly violent, killed about 4,000 people in the immediate aftermath of, uh, of the uh, Civil War and Reconstruction in the, in, in the South. Um, so, you know, this isn't new. You had the Black Hundreds, um, right-wing extremist organizations fighting anarchists and, and socialists in Russia. We've seen, obviously, sort of um, uh, fascist groups supported by uh, Hitler and, and Mussolini in the 1920s and 30s. Um, so these right-wing groups have been around forever, or at least as long as any of the other types of terrorist groups. <clears throat> There's a little ebb and flow to them, I think. Um, but, you know, we've seen, uh, you know, I'm, I'm you know, old enough to remember, for example, uh, Crossland, the, the nail bomber in London who blew up a gay pub and then put a bomb in uh, in Brixton, in the um, Electric Avenue, the, the, the Afro-Caribbean market down there. Um, you know, th- these currents have been around in our society for a very long time. Um, and every now and again, they get a little bit more momentum. So I don't think there's anything particularly new about this. Uh, and I think in terms of our response, we just need to have faith in our laws. Um, you know, we have the powers we need to investigate the, 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 uh, the right-wing extremist groups. They are no different from a investigator's point of view, from a target point of view as a left wing group or a, a religious extremist group. Um, they will be motivated by many of the same things. They will have many of the same vulnerabilities. They will be broadly speaking built around social networks, whether those are online or, 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 or familial or, or friendship based. Um, and you know, you, you, you do the same things that you have been doing in other investigations in other places within the law. Um, and one thing that I think we do have in our favor is we've been doing this a lot for the last 20 years. Um, so there's a lot of skilled people out there at the moment. And, and I don't think this is a particularly hard target to penetrate. Um, but I do think it is or it has the potential in some of the countries where right wing groups are active. And I'm, I'm thinking particularly about the United States to pose a potentially existential threat. Um, and the reason I think that is because you have had a president of the United States that has provided succor to these groups. And that's just extraordinary to have an internal threat 
that is given that kind of political cover by one of the main political parties in the country. Uh, it's, it's breathtaking. And I can't think of any similar threat manifested in a state that has received that kind of support from within the establishment. I just can't. I, I think you'd have to go back to the 1930s and look at something like Nazi Germany or, or, or uh, fascist Italy. And I'm not drawing a deliberate parallel there and, and, and suggesting the um, Republican Party is fascist. I'm not making that point at all. What I am making a, a point is that this is an establishment that is extending political cover to people who are involved in violent extremist activity. And that's really, really unusual. Typically, you see the group involved being used to put pressure on a neighboring government, not on your own people. So this is a very, I think, a very serious situation um, and a very alarming situation. But I don't think it requires new techniques or new methods. Um, and in fact, I think it's incredibly important that we don't go outside the bounds of the law. Um, I think this is one of those cases where legitimacy is going to be an incredibly important part of winning this conflict. Um, and there's a great, you know, a great image that, that, that I always like to use because I think it's really important and it comes from, from Mao. And you often hear terrorism being described as the war of the flea. This is Mao's famous description of guerrilla warfare and of terrorism, the war of the flea. But people don't actually understand Mao's metaphor, because if you read what Mao wrote, is he's not talking about fleas. He's not talking about the fleas. The damage is not done by the flea bites. The fleas bite the dog, but it's the dog scratching at the bites and those bites becoming infected that weaken the dog and ultimately, you know, uh, degrade, you know, the, 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 uh, degrade the dogs to the point with a dog to the point where it's no longer able to defend itself. You know, it's what the dog does to itself that weakens it rather than what's done to it by external actors. Um, and I think that's an important image to bear in mind as we think about how to respond to right-wing extremist groups. It, terrorism is cyclical. Um, most terrorist organizations tend to burn themselves out within 20 or 30 years, which I know is a very long period of time. But there are very few terrorist organizations that are multi-generational. Um, two generations seems to be the maximum. Um, and this is one of those instances, I think, where we will see this current trend burn itself out relatively quickly, but only if we stay calm and maintain our cool and respond in a way that is measured, uh, resolute, but also lawful. Um, and I, I don't think you can really do anything else. You just have to be patient and you have to stay within the law and you have to fa have faith that your system of government and your way of life is sufficiently attractive that the vast majority of the people living in your country want it to stay the way it is. I'm confident that's the case in the United States. Um, and so that's that's where I would put all my chips, you know, on, on just using the techniques that we've developed, staying within the law and making the argument that what's being done is legitimate because the threat posed is not. Super. Thank you. Um, I'd like to wrap up here for today. Firstly, by saying thank you again very much for your time today. Uh, it's always a pleasure to chat with you and to, to hear your insights on, on this topic. Um, I'd also say to all our listeners, if you like what you heard today, please go pick up a copy of Tom's book. It's called Avoiding the Terrorist Trap, Why Respect for Human Rights is the Key to Defeating Terrorism. It contains so much more than what we were able to cover today, and it's really, I think, essential reading for all of us working on counterterrorism. 
Tom, I appreciate the conversation and uh, we'll speak soon. Thanks. Alex, it was entirely my pleasure. This has been Counterterrorism After 9-11, a new podcast series from the International Center for Counterterrorism. For more insight, find us at ICT.nl. Stay tuned for more episodes of Counterterrorism After 9-11.